With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 220 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from Hull on the east coast of England and is a distressing story of sex work, violence, fraud and missed opportunities. Before we start, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially those new members of this most exclusive club. That's Hugh Conigan, Sharon Shanks, Anne-Marie Wallace, Emma Rogers, Paul Haswell and Rebecca Wadsworth. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. If you aren't aware yet of Best Fiends, let me tell you all about it, because it's the game that everyone is talking about. Trust me, it's not your standard mobile puzzle game. Best Fiends is great fun as it challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's also a casual game, which means you can play it for short periods whenever you have some free time. During these days of lockdown, it means I can play the game with friends and family, sharing fun times even if we can't meet face to face. And even better for me living in a rural location is that you don't need the internet to play, which I love. With new in-game challenges and new events every month, the game always feels fresh and you'll never be bored. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R... Best Fiends. Top of the UK charts were the Spice Girls with Spice Up Your Life, keeping those heavy rockers aqua off the top spot with Barbie Girl. In the US, it was Elton John with Candle in the Wind 1997. The top album in Australia this year was Savage Garden with Savage Garden. Not very imaginative, is it? Like those men who call their sons their name. I never get that either, do you? In the news this month, after years of angry denials, triple gold medal winning American sprinter Marion Jones admitted steroid use. She pleaded guilty to lying to federal investigators and announced her retirement in a tearful apology. I don't know. When I was growing up, athletics was so popular. And people like Marion Jones, I have no sympathy at all. She destroyed the sport. After eight years in exile, Benazir Bhutto returned to Pakistan. The same night, suicide attackers blew themselves up near her convoy, killing over 100 people, including 20 police officers. Benazir Bhutto escaped uninjured on that occasion, but sadly, she was to be assassinated just two months later. In Argentina, birthplace of the greatest football manager ever born, Marcelo Bielsa, elected its first female president, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner. Did you guess the month and year? It was October. 1997. The podcast today is from Hull, a city in the northeast of England on the River Humber, around 50 miles east of Leeds and 190 miles or so north of London. 
the UK City of Culture in 2017, hordes of people visit Hull for... Um, well, let's move on with the story, shall we? In 1998, there was speculation that there was a serial killer on the loose in Hull. The bodies of 29-year-old Samantha Class and 20-year-old Haley Morgan had already been discovered within the last 10 months. They were both sex workers, selling their services on the streets of Hull's red light district. Samantha was killed in the October and Haley in the May. Now there was a third sex worker who had been killed, 25-year-old Natalie Club. Natalie, the mother of three young children, had been missing since May, and two months later her body was found. It was July the 29th when Natalie was identified by her palm print and from tattoos on her severed arm, which was found in a drainage ditch close to Great Calvert Pumping Station in Sutton, a suburb of Hull, by a member of the public walking their dog. Of course they were. Once this grisly find had been reported to the police, her further search revealed Natalie's torso, her arm, her leg and her head, which were badly decomposed. Her poor family weren't even certain when they buried Natalie, which parts of her body were in the grave. Detective Chief Inspector Paul Davison, who was leading the investigation, said of reports that a possible serial killer was targeting sex workers in the city, The only obvious and undisputed link at the moment is that these three women were all prostitutes and drug users operating in Hull, and it is the people associated with prostitution and drugs that may hold the key to the deaths. It is too early to say there is a possibility and then again there is not. Our bottom line is that we have to keep an open mind about everything. Although police had no specific evidence of a serial killer and they were certainly reluctant to risk widespread public hysteria, even if they had been certain that the deaths were all the work of one man, they were considering the possibility in private. While the three investigations remained separate, computer databases containing evidence were linked. Forensic psychologists from the National Crime Faculty at Bramshill in Hampshire had created psychological profiles of possible killers and the senior officers managing each case regularly discussed their progress. With Natalie's death, detectives were conflicted. On the one hand, she may have been the victim of a serial killer, but some detectives weren't even convinced that she was murdered. They considered that Natalie, a heroin addict, like so many women selling sex on the streets of Hull at the time, may have died as a result of a drug's overdose and that her body may have been left where it was and eventually found by another drug user. This had some support from the psychological profilers, who had suggested that the polythene bag covering her head when she was found may have been placed over her head by the person who put her there, someone they believed who knew her and was trying to protect her identity. But what is for certain is that in her life selling sex, Natalie faced violence in her work on a daily basis. The police in Hull weren't, how can I say this, one of the more enlightened forces at this time. Let's pause quickly here. I often get messages from police officers when I criticise police forces, so let me reiterate again that I'm a huge supporter of our police, who almost all do an amazing job in very difficult circumstances. But the way they treated sex workers back then was very shabby to say the least. We can't comprehend 
just how frightening that life must have been for workers in the red light area of Hull, facing constant violence on a daily basis and knowing that their complaints wouldn't be taken seriously. This meant they had to accept it as a hazard of their job. Nowadays, although not perfect by any means, the response of the police towards attacks on sex workers is so much better. Detectives tried to find out about Natalie's movements in the weeks before she died, but this was difficult as she lived a chaotic lifestyle. Some of the sex workers who knew her told how she'd been depressed before she had died and had openly talked about death. Others told how Natalie regularly disappeared for weeks at a time. A common theme from witnesses was that Natalie's boyfriend was distraught when she disappeared and he pestered the police to find her. So all in all it was a confusing picture. What was for sure is that Natalie was experiencing some trouble in her life away from work and she was shortly due to appear in court for breaching her probation order. Had this been playing on her mind and had it been the final straw that caused her to take her own life? Detectives looked more into her background. They discovered that Natalie had suffered an abusive relationship with her ex-husband in the mid-90s in Salisbury. She finally managed to escape with two of her three children to Hull. When there, she stayed at William Booth House. It was a subsidised block for people homeless in the city and getting back on their feet, not far from the city centre. But while there, Natalie met drug addict Darren Adams and they became an item. It was the worst possible thing that could have happened to Natalie. At her most vulnerable, she needed support and inspiration, but instead, she met a total loser of a boyfriend. He sent her on a severe downward spiral of drug addiction, and he even encouraged her to become involved in sex work to bring home more money. In October 1997, Natalie appeared at Hull Crown Court after admitting to being responsible a series of thefts and burglaries. She told the court that her life had become a complete mess after meeting Darren and sobbed when she told that due to the chaos her life had become, her children, who'd meant the world to her, had been removed from her care. Sadly, as you will know, this is a story we have heard many times on this podcast. But as her life continued to deteriorate, Natalie and Darren eventually left William Booth house and set up home together in the boarded up house to the east of Hull. Natalie's boyfriend Darren was a suspect from the moment that Natalie had gone missing and this suspicion increased when he suddenly disappeared too as he became aware that detectives were closing in on him. But although he was effectively on the run for almost a year, detectives believed that he was the person who was regularly sending them letters talking about Natalie's death. A confident master of disguise he wasn't, and Darren was eventually arrested and later charged with murder. In court, he was found guilty of stabbing Natalie eight times and dismembering her body after a row at their house. Detectives were able to figure out that in the early hours of May 13th, 1998, just before Natalie was reported missing, Darren Adams stabbed Natalie a number of times in the chest and then calmly walked with her body to the home of a friend. When there, the two of them dismembered her body in the bath with a chainsaw before depositing parts of her in plastic bags. 
The sentence I've just read can never capture the horror of that. The sights, smells, noises and cold-heartedness of such an action. Adam still didn't admit his guilt and appealed, but his appeals never made much progress and he stayed in jail. By 2017, after spending 18 years in prison for the murder of Natalie, Adams was hopeful of release. Natalie's family were appalled to find posts on social media by Adams suggesting he was looking for love as he readied himself for release. But fate stepped in and at just 55, Adams died in prison. An anonymous family member speaking on behalf of Natalie's children said, We all believe that Adams was an evil person. There is no two ways about it. He ruined many lives. Not only did he murder our mum, he chopped her up and threw her away in bin bags. Some parts were never found. Maybe some people who commit murder deserve a second chance, but not Adams. He was very cunning, and he even reported her missing himself. He blamed others for her death. Our mum lived a chaotic life, but it was only when she met Adams that she got into drugs. She wasn't perfect, but she was never given the chance to improve and be the mum we know she could have been. She was a free spirit and she enjoyed life, but she made that one mistake in getting involved with drugs and she paid a terrible price. Detectives were certain that Adams had not killed the other two women who had been murdered in hell. So just who had killed 29-year-old Samantha Class and 20-year-old Hayley Morgan? Hayley, also known as Hayley Marshall, was found on the 27th of May 1998 in an alleyway off the Beverly Road in Hull under a tree. Hayley was a heroin addict and worked as a sex worker on the streets of Hull near her home. When she was discovered, Hayley was partly clothed and had a plastic bag over her head. In a similar way to Natalie, the police weren't convinced she'd been murdered and at the inquest, an open verdict was returned after it was found that she had died from a massive heroin overdose and asphyxiation. But let me ask you this. If Hayley had been a married professional with children, would her death have been treated in the same way? I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions from the following information. When she was discovered, her body had been battered and bruised and she had sustained a variety of significant injuries, which the coroner said indicated she had been punched and kicked resulting in cuts under her left eye and bruising to both sides of her face. Despite the open verdict, Haley had clearly been murdered. Those detectives who shared this view thought that the crime had happened away from Beverly Road, where her lifeless body was dumped. Four people were arrested during the investigation, but nobody was charged with Haley's murder. Remember, Haley was just 20 years old when she was killed. Please do take the opportunity to search for her online after you've listened to this podcast and see her distinctive red hair and pretty smile. It's so upsetting that nobody has ever been convicted of Haley's murder and the case is now inactive. Will her murderer get away with this awful crime? Or maybe can advances in forensic technology finally bring her justice? The third woman whose death was potentially considered to be at the hands of a serial killer was 29-year-old Samantha Class. 
Samantha had a son aged one and two daughters aged four and twelve. She also had an addiction to heroin. Managing childcare with her work was difficult and on the night she disappeared, she'd hired a babysitter before she went out to the red light area of Hull. Samantha was known to her customers as Zoe, Rachel, Little Sam and Sammy and sometimes would take her customers back to a nearby house where she lived with her three children. Samantha had first become involved with sex work at just 17 years old but she got on to do other things. But as a mum of three addicted to heroin, she needed to earn money and return to sex work in 1997 and this would lead to her death. It was in October 1997 that three teenagers, out walking along the banks of the River Humber, found the half-naked body of Samantha washed ashore near North Ferriby. She had suffered a frightening and violent death before being strangled with a cord or flex. Samantha had the most awful internal injuries, as well as having been beaten on her head and body. Posters were pasted in the windows of shops, pubs and clubs, and a £5,000 reward for information was issued to find whoever had killed Samantha. As part of the police investigation, the police drew up a list of over 1,200 men who were thought to buy sex from women in Hull so that they could take DNA samples from them. At that time, there were about 100 sex workers working regularly the streets of the Hull Red Light District, and men travelled from as far as Nottingham, Lincoln, York and Scarborough to buy their services. One detective said, We want people to volunteer to provide samples before we go knocking on their door. If in a few weeks people have not come forward, we will send a letter to their home address. Most of these people will probably not want anyone such as their family to know that they are involved in the red light district. Not all the men came forward and there were no doubt some very awkward moments for a number of them when that letter came through the door and it would have led to some very difficult conversations with wives and girlfriends. But despite this, none of the samples were a match. And in time, the investigation naturally began to be scaled down. Did this mean that the killer had got away with it? It appeared so, until detectives got a lucky break. In July 1998, Hull man Gary Allen was stopped by police in Boulevard, West Hull, and arrested for drink driving. As part of the standard procedure when anybody is arrested, a DNA sample was taken from him and it was compared to the National Register. It matched a sample found on the body of Samantha Class, and in October 1998, Alan was charged with Samantha's murder. Although this was hopeful, it certainly didn't guarantee a conviction, as due to the nature of Samantha's work, the DNA from at least six different men were found at Samantha's home, for example. But detectives were confident that they had their man, and now just needed to convince a jury. Alan went on trial in 2000 at Sheffield Crown Court, where a jury was told that DNA evidence showed that Alan had sex with Samantha on the night that she was killed. Alan admitted having sex with Samantha that night, but he denied that he'd killed her. He claimed it was just coincidence that he'd scrapped his car the following day, and the suggestion that this was done to remove evidence of murder was untrue. The jury deliberated for a long period of time 
but when they came back into court, they revealed that they believed what Gary Allen had told them and found him not guilty in a majority verdict. Detectives working on the case were shocked and disappointed with their verdict and really, really upset to watch Gary Allen walk free from court. After his acquittal, Humberside Police said they would not be reopening the investigation and they were not looking for anyone else in connection with Samantha's murder. The day after he was cleared, the Mail newspaper carried a front page with the headline, So Who Did Kill Samantha? So what then became of Gary Allen? After being found not guilty, he moved to Plymouth in the southwest of England, and in 2000, he was convicted of attacking two sex workers in the local area and sent to prison for five and a half years, together with a four and a half year extended license period. Allen's conviction for the Plymouth assaults were down to a number of key factors. Both attacks were interrupted because members of the public were willing to get involved and come to the assistance of the women. Secondly, the police responded quickly and appropriately, remanding Allen in custody. This was vital, as it removes the fear of intimidation and reprisals that occur when suspects are accused of committing assaults on sex workers are bailed. Thirdly, the victims were given very strong support before and during the trial by police officers and staff from the local outreach project. Then finally, the jury believed the testimony of the women and what they said about Gary Allen. Allen was released on licence twice but recalled to prison on each occasion for breaking the conditions. Notably, in March 2004, Gary Allen, who was by then aged 30, had been allowed to serve the remainder of his sentence at his home in Camborne and Cornwall on a home detention curfew tagging scheme. He removed the tag and went on the run. This became big local news, but he gave himself up a few days later. Whilst in custody, he refused to take part in any rehabilitation or sex offender treatment programme. A number of reports he completed all suggested that he continued to pose a high risk of reoffending. But still, at the end of his term, on the 12th of April 2010, he was released back into the community. There's just one final loose end to tie up. The investigation into Samantha's murder did lead to the uncovering of a public scandal in South Yorkshire involving a counsellor and two officials. When sex workers were interviewed, they disclosed that they sold sex to officials from an anti-poverty organisation and they were paid for sex with money meant to help poor. I promise, I'm not making this up. The information collected by Humberside officers was passed to South Yorkshire Police, who started their own inquiries into the alleged misuse of public money. But quite what happened next, who knows? So what do you make of what we've heard today? A terribly shocking story, I think, of three young lives taken. And sadly, they weren't the only sex worker killed on the streets of Hull around that time. Another young woman, 22-year-old Karen Tomlinson, had been murdered the year before. She was found strangled at her flat and her boyfriend, 33-year-old Stephen Price, blamed unhappy customer. Eventually, it was found that Price had killed his girlfriend Karen because she was not making enough money to feed his heroin habit. 
Price was eventually jailed for 10 years for the manslaughter of Karen. We've heard mixed reports of policing in the episode today. Really good work by Devon Police in Plymouth and less good work in Hull. But the story today is not about investigations. It's about the reality that today we have seen that three young women who were very vulnerable due to their work died because of it. And our thoughts go out to their families and to the friends. And then there are potentially still two murderers at large. I wonder if police will ever find out who killed Samantha Class and Hayley Morgan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show and see the video I uploaded this week, catch loads of bonus episodes and enter the competition for three true crime books, which ends in just a week, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. You know you want to. So that's all for me for this week. Thank you for joining me on the 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. Ah, how we dream of the giddy heights of 36th. Just how will we celebrate if we get there? On that ponderous, aspirational bombshell, it is that time of the show that we all dread. Yep, that really is it. So until we speak next week, please do take it easy, despite all the others. And most of all, stay classy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.